Hi everyone, this is Jeff from Startup Sack. It's been a while since we've released a podcast episode, but at our most recent Startup Sack happy hour, we once again recorded our guest entrepreneur during the AMA portion, and we have that to share with you. For this Startup Sack happy hour, we went on a road trip, our first happy hour event to Roseville at the Monk's Cellar with Risk Alive CEO and co-founder Aaron Klein. We had a great turnout, and it was a bit crowded and noisy as pubs and restaurants tend to be, so it was a little bit of a challenge to hear and also to record. Nevertheless, there's some great stories and advice from Aaron that make it a worthwhile listen. Check it out. I was I was definitely honored to be uh, I was honored to be invited and asked to, to come do this. Uh, I have been a fan of the of the work that you've been doing with Startup Sack and am uh, grateful to have the chance to support it. Uh, we. I don't know exactly where to start. First, I, I guess I'll, I'll just go back and give you a quick overview of me. So, like, I started working for my dad at the age of 12 in the afternoons after school. So, kind of entrepreneurial business, I guess, is kind of uh, in my bloodstream. He didn't know anything about minimum wage laws or child labor laws. So, it kind of worked out okay for me. Um, but but from there, I, I, I actually helped him negotiate the sale of his company to a larger company editor when I was about 22 years old, so that was a really interesting experience. Um, did some interesting things with this internet thing. We were doing some different, you know, kind of startup things. A little bit unfocused. Uh, not a lot of vision for where we were going. Um, uh, the first uh, one of those kind of turned out okay. Uh, we we did like a payments kind of, it kind of morphed into like a payments business around um, political campaigns and political parties because in those days there was no Stripe or PayPal or anything like that. So we broke every Visa and MasterCard rule known to man and we stitched together like six merchant accounts and wrote all the software and did all the risk and underwriting ourselves. And if we had any idea how much risk we were taking, we would never have done that. But uh, we, we managed to like get through and, uh, you know, it turns out they only have elections every two years. So that's a highly seasonal business. So we sold it after the first election cycle uh, to a larger competitor and, you know, didn't make a lot of money on it, but it was, it was interesting and kind of, kind of moved on. We moved on to an opportunity in like business ops software for companies like my dad's company that he sold, uh, in the cloud. And of course, the word cloud hadn't been invented yet. The word SaaS hadn't been invented yet. So we called ourselves web software. And, uh, you know, fortunately, we weren't in charge of naming the cloud. So um, so it, it ended up having a much cooler name than that down the road. Um, but it was, uh, you know, we made a ton of mistakes with that company. I would just say like, but it, it was clear that timing was a factor too. Like we raised, uh, you know, a small amount of capital. We were making some of our numbers, missing a lot of our numbers, uh, could not raise any kind of venture capital to save our lives. You know, VCs were kind of like, the few that we could talk to were kind of like, you know, dude, that market is over. It's called QuickBooks. Small businesses buy their software in boxes off the shelf. It's called QuickBooks. Like, that's done. Who is going to want to put their business data on the internet? Like, that's just stupid. So, uh, so that company did not work out, and that was that was painful and hard and difficult. And um, one of the big lessons I learned there was that I, I, I made a big mistake in kind of overscaling the company way too fast. Like we were, we clearly, in hindsight, did not have anything like product market fit, and we were. Uh, you know, like at our peak, we had like 24 people. Like it was way too big for a company that had a small number of customers and was really not like repeatable yet. Um, so learn that painful lesson very, very 
hard one. Um, I actually was, uh, after after we kind of shut that down and walked away from that, uh, went to work for a division of a company called Options Express, Options Brokerage Firm. Uh, and I was um, uh, basically running product. Like I was, I was helping to ship technology products for options traders, uh, and they would figure out these complex options trades. And um, I remember, you know, first of all, I was a couple years into that, um, and it was a, uh, you know, the, the boss that I worked for, she was great to work for, but it was a very difficult company culture. Like it was, it was, it was, there were so many things wrong with that company and its culture. Um, I can't even begin to say, but, um, I was probably only a year in that I was like, I have to start another company at some point, like, cause I don't want to work in this kind of environment for the long term. But I, I, I also knew that I really wanted it to be successful. So I wanted to, kind of wait and be thoughtful and make sure that I had the, the right idea and the right uh, concept for it to work. Um, probably about a year and a half, two years into that, I remember talking to the guy who became my co-founder in Riftalyze, uh, whose name is Mike McDaniel, and he is a financial advisor. I remember saying to him, it is crazy how the average investor thinks about the concept of risk. And he said, if you think that's crazy, you should see how many of their financial advisors think about it. Like, we just, in our industry, we do not have the tools to actually understand how much risk clients want. We think we do, but we get a very 1950s black and white fuzzy TV picture of what the client can actually handle. And we stick these labels on them like conservative, moderate, and aggressive. And we have no idea what those words mean or whether they mean the same thing to all the different people at the table. Me, the financial advisor, you, the investor, and maybe the asset manager, and I'm putting you in Vanguard's moderate portfolio, and you're saying, well, I feel, I feel moderate today, right? And we have no idea if we mean the same thing by those words. Um, so I still, uh, I found in the files not long ago, like a November 2008 memo that I wrote kind of to myself, just like laying out like how this might work. And I actually convinced myself that it was not going to work and said, no, I'm not going to do this, this risk thing uh, in like 2009. Um, and so, uh, so I just, I just kind of kept toying with different ideas throughout 2009 and, and through most of 2010. And sometime in the fall of 2010, uh, I was over for dinner at Mike's house and said to him, so whatever happened with that risk thing that you were kind of working on? And uh, we had a mutual friend who had, uh, who actually had a few patents with some really interesting IP around the idea. And so, you know, so he he had been he'd been the one kind of pushing me to think about starting a company around that. And so um, so I was like, whatever happened to that? And he said, Well, I actually I was hoping you'd ask because I went and actually had a prototype of of, of that IP built. You know, do you want to go through it? I said, sure, let's take a look. So he had gone, um, kind of fun trivia, he had gone to his brother, who was a physics teacher at Nevada Union High School, and he said, I need to talk to the smartest student who has ever come through your class. Without a moment's hesitation, he said, you need to talk to Matt Pistone. Matt is today our chief technology officer, right? So Matt actually built this prototype. Um, I played with it. It was incredibly ugly, and it annoys Matt to no end when I call it the world's ugliest prototype, but I still love saying it, because it really was. But... Well, like I went through the prototype and I was kind of hooked on it for the first time. Like I could see, 
how you might be able to turn this into a product. There was a lot of work. Like it took what it, what today is a five to seven minute process to understand your risk number. It took a long time. It was very manual and very like painful and difficult to figure out. But you could kind of see the kernels of a good idea there. Uh, and so, so I, you know, I started thinking about it again, started thinking differently about like how the business plan might work, um, you know, and, and, and started working on putting that together. Mike had this financial advisory business and was not in a position to kind of exit that. So he, you know, he was like, Hey, listen, like, I want to be a part of this. I'll invest in it. I'll, I'll, I'll be there. We could talk every day on the phone, but I can't have an office. I can't take a title or take a role in the company because under the rules of my license as a financial advisor, that's outside business activity. I can't do that. So I was like, he's like, you're going to have to be the guy, you know, if, if we do this. Um, and I was like, okay, well, I, 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 can, I can get behind that. So we started thinking about, like, how to put a team together, thinking about raising money, uh, raised a small round from basically just angel investors, friends and family network, and, and uh, we had some financial advisors thrown into the mix who could see the potential for the idea and, uh, and invested kind of early on. Um, we we raised enough money that we were able to kind of get started in uh, March of 2011. Uh, Steve Ricketts was involved early on. He and I have been friends, had worked in that prior startup, and so he got involved and kind of helped us with some of the fundraising pieces as well and, and thinking about uh, the business model. And so we... Uh, we, we actually got started in March of 2011. We had basically three people at that moment in time. So it was me, it was an engineer that we recruited who was really good at like front-end product, and it was Matt Stone, who was the physics grad that was really good with the back-end math. Incidentally, by the way, today, Mike's brother, who is the physics teacher, now works for his former student as an engineer at Risk Plus. So uh, kind, of a, kind of a cool twist in the story. Um, but yeah, we, we started, we, we officially got started like March 1 of 2011. Um, and, you know, we were, we were incredibly excited and confident about what we were going to do. Uh, we, we started building out the core technology. And there was a lot of complex stuff that we had to build from, from a math perspective on the back end. Um, so we worked on that throughout much of 2011. And our, our, our thesis was we actually said, you know, Great financial advisors are not going to road test brand new risk technology on their clients. So we've actually got to start by validating this with consumers. We've got to start by, um, you know, uh, th this is the age of Web 2.0. Like, we can actually build a free product for consumers, get it on the web, get some PR, and, and we'll validate that the technology actually works and that it's useful. And then, you know, phase one will license it to, like, one of the big discount brokers because, you know, our, our focus here is going to be, like, the 25K E-Trade guys, right? So you're not the people who have a financial advisor, maybe have 100,000, 250,000, something like that to invest. We're going we're gonna to target this at, like, guys who have $25,000 in an E-Trade account, and that's, that's how they approach investing. Um, so... 
that's kind of what we built. We launched that free product on the web in like early 2012. So it took us almost a year uh, to kind of get all of that done and get that launched out there. Um, early 2012, we launched that, and I, I, 2012 is our year of, I like to call it our year of successful failure. In hindsight, I don't know that we could have accomplished what we've accomplished without doing 2012, but in the middle of 2012, it felt really, really bad, because the first half of 2012 was great. We launched this product. We're out there getting a bunch of PR. We, we New York Times, Barron's, NPR. We have users coming in, building $2 billion worth of portfolios on the product. And we, we, we did like read out like the outliers. Like there was somebody who put a billion dollar portfolio in. We were pretty sure Warren Buffett was not using our website. So we, we read all that out. But, but like $2 billion worth of portfolios at a $27,000 average account size. So we kind of hit the mark with the kind of, of users that we were looking for, and they were in there like capturing your risk number and putting in their portfolio from E-Trade or wherever and figuring out how to reshape it to fit their risk number. And then in theory, we couldn't really see this, but in theory, going off and like update, you know, making the trades to like change that in their E-Trade account. And then three months later, they come, we'd send them a reminder and say, hey, you need to double check your risk number again and see if you need to realign things to stay in balance. So, uh, of course, we didn't have any way to like sink into their E-Trade account or their TD account or anything like that. So it was somewhat manual, but it was really encouraging to see $2 billion worth of users like like actually liking this and using it. So that was the success part. The failure part was that our monetization strategy just like didn't work. Like, like trying to license it to those big five brokers just didn't work. Um, in short order, you know, it, it, again, in hindsight, there were only five potential customers on the face of planet Earth. Okay? So today it's only four because two of them have merged, right? So Fidelity, uh, Schwab, and Scott Trade in short order said, oh, we don't work with outside partners for technology on our retail platform. We just don't do that. Uh, so that left E-Trade and TD Ameritrade. E-Trade was a financial basket case that year. So they like were almost they almost slid into bankruptcy in 2012. They ended up losing their CEO again for like the second time in two years. So they really wanted to do the deal with us and like couldn't get it done. Uh, we ended up getting the deal with TD Ameritrade. They said yes. I like I think it was like the Thursday or Friday before Labor Day 2012 that I flew to their office in Baltimore. We're supposed to sit down and like work out the logistics and work out a contract and economics and what it's going to be and in the room we have our champions who really love the idea we have our enemies who hate the idea and don't want to do it and one of the enemies says what technology stack are you built in and you know we've we've chosen pretty modern stuff you know we're like you know lamp stack and all all the, all the newest tech and they're like oh well we're built in asp classic like we can't even talk to web services we can't do this we can't do that until we finish our rebuild come back in in three to four quarters which is big company speak for a middle finger right like that that's that's what that really means um, Come back in three to four quarters. Actually, I think it was four to six quarters. Now they say. Nevertheless, it meant 
don't come back, right? Like that's what it meant. So, um, so anyway, like I, that was a long plane flight home, and and somewhere we had like three months of money left in the bank. Somewhere I still got this notebook page where I remember writing um, what I call the Apollo 13 question at the top of the page, right? So it's it's the question Gene Kranz asked when they're trying to get the spaceship back to Earth. He's like, "What do we have on the ship that's good?" And you know what I was able to write on the page was uh, great core technology that we really believed in and two billion dollars worth of validation so I remember bringing the team back together you know uh, Labor Day weekend uh, and I just said look if we're gonna go down we got three months of money left if we're gonna go down like let's go down swinging let's rebuild the product for financial advisors and see our $2 billion of validation isn't enough to convince them to jump aboard and actually use the product. So we got to work uh, building you know, the version, basically reorienting the product for financial advisors. Uh, today, it's still called Riskalyze Pro because we called the free website Riskalyze and the advisor product Riskalyze Pro. We shut down the free website at some point, but um, that's that's why it was called Riskalyze Pro in the first place. Um, and we... Uh, it was still slow going. There was a lot of smoke, but no fire. Uh, but we started getting some smoke, like uh, in late October, so about you know a month and a half, two months later. Uh, we had a good working prototype of the advisor product. I kind of like stalked a famous financial advisor who's on CNBC every other day at a conference, and finally convinced him to like take a look at the product. And he took a look at it, and just kind of fell in love with it, and just loved it. And was like, this is amazing. Joined our advisory board. We put him in the investor deck, raised enough money that we could kind of keep the company alive and we kind of made it through to um, basically, I mean, we were like raising money in dribs and drabs, just trying to stay alive all the way through to like March of 2013 when the advisor product kind of officially came out of beta. And we were we were still really struggling up to then, like trying to figure out like what do we need to do to try to get this to like go. Um, and it turned out it was like the dumbest little feature. Like the biggest problem we had is we were forcing advisors to like hand type everything in from all their you know custodial systems where they've got access to client assets. And so building integrations with all those systems was going to take months. We built them all now, right? But building them was going to take months or years. And we're like, we don't even know if it'll take months. Like we we've got to get on the phone with these guys and see if they'll even talk to us. And like, you know, I, I already had, had my fill in 2012 trying to talk to big kahunas and try to make things work, right? So all of a sudden we had this idea where we, we talked to one of the advisors we're talking to, we're like, hey, can you export that portfolio like to an Excel sheet? And they're like, Oh yeah, sure. We're like, email that to us. So they email it to us and we um I'm like, okay, guys, here's what we need. Like, put a put an import button right there. When it pops up, we're going to get sample spreadsheets from all the different custodial platforms, and I want you to build drag and drop. And so you could drag and drop the Excel spreadsheet in and drop it in there, and it would just import the file and load up the portfolio. And we called it, don't laugh too hard, drag and drop integration. Okay. And so whenever they could sit, it was just good marketing, right? But whenever they well, do you have any integration with Microsoft? Yes, we have drag and drop integration with TD Ameritrade. It's really easy. It works like this. You know, we show them and you just drag and drop it in and boom, they're super close. They're like, wow, that's amazing. We're just importing Excel files. Like that's all we're doing here, right? 
But that was like the little feature that we shipped in February that kind of like got us over the hump where it was really usable. And, and March kind of officially came out of beta and it kind of took off like a rocket. So we went from um, practically zero customers and um, like four people in the company at that point in time. Um, that was like our first year of growth. I think we ended the year at about 380 customers. Um, we hired uh, about six more people. Dan Cunningham joined as our VP of product that year. Actually, I'm sorry. He joined as an engineer that year. We didn't need a VP of product yet. He eventually became our VP of product, um, but joined as an engineer. So I think we hired like uh, two more engineers, a support guy, so I didn't have to answer all the support calls. Mike joined that summer. He sold the part of his advisory business that regulated him, and he was able to, to basically just keep the small part that was RA only and, and join us as chief investment officer. Um, so uh, we had like, I, I, I hired an assistant who did all of the customer support and all this kind of stuff. And um, she today is my chief of staff and it takes 120 people today to do the job that she did in 2013. So just fascinating. Um, but yeah, so I mean, we ended that year with about 10 people and about 380 customers. 2014 was the year that almost killed us. We went from 380 to about 2,600 customers. And there are still things today that are broken inside of our company that I go, yeah, we lost control of that in 2014. Like we still blame 2014 for stuff that, that exists today that's that's broken inside of Riskalyze. Um, but sent, you know, we're, today we're over 200 employees serving over 20,000 financial advisors across the country. Um, and uh, it is an interesting, wild journey. We've, uh, you know, those 200 employees, about uh, 100 and, I'm going to get this math straight in my head. I think we've got about 150 or so in Auburn, and we've got about 50 or so in our Atlanta office. I think that's about right. So that's, we have two offices in Auburn, about 75 each. And we have uh, about about 50 or so employees in our Atlanta office. Um, so that's Riskalyze today. Yeah, right. So the first question I want to throw out to one of the four or five women in the room. Women, raise your hand. Who's got a question amongst you? I know at least one of you does. Who raise your hand? Oh, go ahead. Oh, no, I'm sorry. Yeah. How far could yeah? How far? Yeah. How far could we have taken risk with the angel investment? Well, you know, I wasn't in. I had kids. I was not in a position to like start the company without being able to to take a salary. So that was you know like different people have different financial positions, and I was not in a position to kind of work on on my startup for free. Um, you know, and if we were going to really go for this, like it had to be our focus. We couldn't just work on it on the weekends. Like it was never going to get anywhere that way. So we had a really strong thesis for what it could be. We went and talked to you know people, particularly financial advisors, who could kind of see the vision and 
Um, and you know, financial advisors have the added benefit of being people who invest for a living. So they sat there and went, that makes sense, right? Like I know how to invest and make a return on that. So they looked at it, thought it made sense. And so that gave us the opportunity to kind of raise the capital and make it work. But you know, our first round was like $400,000. Like it was not a lot. And that's the beauty. This was also my first startup in the era of Amazon Web Services. So like at the last startup, we spent the first like $250,000 on servers. Our first bill for servers was like 40 bucks this time, right? So it's a little bit better. Yeah, for sure. What is your do you mean as a company or yeah. personally or yeah question is scalability and versatility yeah what's the scalability company what's the versatility company well that's a great question i mean so first of all uh, i'll tackle versatility first so one of our we have we have a very defined mission we're, we're here to empower the world to invest fearlessly we believe that people are sabotage their own investing it's just what psychology does when markets are up people feel excited and they're they're optimistic and they want to put more money to work and then as soon as markets go down they start getting fearful they start making really bad investment decisions warren buffett said it best investors are you know uh, uh, investments are literally the only thing that the american consumer refuses to buy when they're at their cheapest and only wants to buy when they're at their most expensive right so um so that's our mission and we have nine core values and one of those is focus we say we want to do a small number of things really really well so that we can make a deep impact on our customers and not try to boil the ocean and so from a versatility perspective we've actually tried not to be very versatile and try to have a very rigid view of like the direction we want to take where we think the industry needs to go where we think advisors need to go where we think investors need to go um, and then we're flexible in the sequencing of how we're going to get to that vision based on what's going to work okay and what is working um, the the first one was scalability. So, so scalability is an interesting one because that is, I mean, uh, we have done a ton of scaling, right? And the worst part was probably the last 18 months where we've gone from like 90 to over 200 employees. And um, digesting that has been has been crazy. Um, but, you know, the, the I, I, I have been advised by people smarter than me that what I need to do is have a positive mental attitude about this and understand that the reason why everything is broken all the time is because we're growing so fast, right? So that's a positive sign. So there's a reason why, like, I, it, it drives me nuts because I'm like, didn't we solve that problem like four months ago? Like, why can't that problem stay solved so we can work on some of these other problems? And it's because we're growing so fast that the solution that we tried to build four months ago for that problem is broken, right? So um, we're still trying to get ahead of that. We're still trying to recover from our lack of good scalability in 2014. We scale, but our systems didn't scale with us. Um, you know, a really good example is just trying to keep track of like basic things like how many customers do we have, okay? And I, funny story, like in 2014, our system for tracking growth was there was a whiteboard outside of my office, okay? And so every week on Monday, I would write the number of advisors that we had in the top, you know, kind of left corner of the whiteboard. And then throughout the week, every time somebody sold a new advisor, they come write the advisor's name and write plus one. 
once in a while, we would sell a team of two advisors and they'd write plus two. It was crazy. And then if somebody canceled, a solitary tier would go down our cheek and we'd write their name up there in red with minus one, right? And like this is what we'd do throughout the week. And then at the end of the week, we would add up all the numbers, add it to the starting number, total it at the bottom right corner of the whiteboard, take a picture of the whiteboard, erase it, and start over for the next week. Okay? So, um... I don't know how to make that. Yeah, it could be it could be a good idea. So Yeah. So like somewhere during 2014, we you know, we were thinking about this from a systems perspective, but it just like came off the wheels came up because I remember at some point discovering to my horror that like somebody had stopped when we when we set up credit cards to be charged, they'd stopped putting the user ID number of the customer into the credit card processing system. So there was no linkage between the people we were charging and the users that we had provisioned. So I remember going, this is going to be a real problem. And, you know, we just finished that because I'll tell you what happens. If you're charging people's credit card who are not users of the product, they call you. If you are not charging people's credit cards who are users of the product, I'll tell you what, they don't call you. They don't tell you that, right? She didn't charge me. No, they don't tell you that. So fortunately, like as it turns out, we only had about 50 users who were using the product but not being charged when we finished that audit. But I mean, it's been hell to like go back through and like reconnect. We're still not done. Right, but like try to reconnect all that all that stuff and be able to figure out users to billing to CRM and like connect it all up. And um, you know, they say fixing operational problems like that is like your hair is on fire, and the only thing you have to put it out is a hammer. <laughs> and I can I can attest to the fact that that's true. So you know, scalability. I'd like to think that we're growing in scalability every day, um, but it's a constant battle to be scalable. Sure. Follow up question. <laughs> What do you think, like, attribute to that? What, what do you attribute to the jump to? Um, so it's really interesting. Like, when, when we, a, a big part of the reason I think for our growth is that we actually invented a new space. Now, what's what's interesting about that is like today, and, and I mean, I, I still kind of pinch myself that we've done this, right? But today, if a financial advisor asks a financial advisor, what are the core technology, what, what are the core things I need in my technology stack to operate really well as a financial advisor, there's a decent chance that they will say, you're going to need a CRM, you're going to need Riskalyze, you're going to need, and, and then we don't know what they'll say for the third thing. Some of them will say a financial planning software tool. Some of them will say, you know, I, they can have some different answers for number three. But like we kind of made it to number two, right? Like we're not a CRM that's kind of a core operational piece for every advisor, but we kind of made it to number two, like we're the number tool in, in the toolkit. Um, and our our space didn't exist. Like nobody said that before we existed. They didn't say you need a CRM and then a risk tool and then something else. So um, we really went out there and said, um, part of this was just aspirational messaging of us saying, we think the world ought to be this way. We think every advisor needs to put risk at the center of how they engage with clients. We think that the, 
you know, I, I'll step back for a second. We like to talk about the third wave of advice. So what I mean by that is the first wave is how advisors who generally didn't call themselves advisors did it back in the 80s. They would uh, basically just tout better returns. It's kind of like the days from, from being stockbrokers and stuff like that. They're like, I have, we have the best research team. Like our firm has access to better investments than anybody else has. Um, my mutual fund is better than the other guy's mutual fund. Like that was the pitch in the 80s. It's been documented in movies like Wolf of Wall Street, you know, and stuff like that. Like it's, it's none, none of these are any good. Okay. That kind of gave way to advisors who were trying to say, well, let's, you know, I'm not going to try to convince you that my investments are better or going to get you a better return. Now we're going to talk about your long-term goals. And whenever you ask me about your short-term returns, I'm going to deflect the question and I'm going to say, you shouldn't worry about your, your, your return this year or this month. You should be thinking about your long-term goals in the future. And look, I've run your money into the calculator and like, you're going to be fine in 30 years. Try not to open your mail, try not to watch television, just be a long-term investor. And that's that's not exactly, like, like there's a kernel of truth at the heart of that advice, okay? The only problem with that advice is no human can follow it, okay? The kernel of truth, by the way, is that whole thing about how we sabotage our own investing. Fidelity did a study recently about, like, they were trying to say, see, is there any factor that would correlate with people having a very high-performing brokerage account? So we're talking about self-directed investors, no advisor. Like, is there any factor that would correlate with being, like, in the top 5% of brokerage accounts? And they found three factors. If you had one of these three factors, there was a high probability you were going to be in the top 5% of highest-performing fidelity brokerage accounts. And the three factors were you had forgotten your password, you had died, or you had completely forgotten you had an account at Fidelity. Okay? So there is a kernel of truth to that advice, but we really felt like the third wave of advice was if we can understand how much risk somebody can handle, we can empower them to understand and react to risk appropriately, and that will turn a fear-bound investor who makes bad short-term decisions into a fearless investor who makes really great short-term decisions, and that's how they'll achieve those long-term financial goals. So that paradigm shift for the industry was just one that I think worked. Like, there was a hole that we kind of saw that other people didn't see. Um, so for the first couple of years, like, we had that to ourselves. And there have been probably five or six companies that have tried to spring up and copy us since then. Um, none of them have been successful. A big part of that has been that we we really worked hard to create a moat around the business by covering more securities and products and strategies than anybody else could. We opened up our data to like proprietary asset managers who don't put their data on public data feeds, but advisors were demanding that they put their data on Riskalyze. And so we, we, today we, we cover like over a quarter million you know, stocks, ETFs, mutual funds, and other kinds of products, securities, and strategies, and lots of stuff that's not on public data feeds. So whenever a competitor has popped up, 
you know, we have some advisors who say, oh, cheaper. And they jump over there, and then they try to use it for a month or two, and they go, oh, it doesn't work. And then they, they come right back. And we charge them more when they come back, because we don't grandfather their old prices. Uh -huh. So, so um, I have a question a little more startup strategy-wise. You opened up an Atlanta office, and that had to be, for one, expensive to have two offices, two sets of operating systems, people across the, the continent. Yep. Why did you make that decision? What were the pluses yeah. and minuses? So uh, the question was, we opened an Atlanta office that had to be really expensive, there are pluses and minuses, like why did we make that decision? Um, so the primary reason that we made that decision is because I was really tired of being East Coast support at 5 a.m. on the elliptical with my iPad, right? Like, like something had to give. So um, in sometime in 2014 during that crazy year, we actually hired a kid who uh, was going to go to Columbia in New York in the fall. And he said, hey, hire me to do support on the East Coast. I'm going to be you know, here in Auburn for the summer. I'll work 5 a.m. to 2 p.m. And kind of like learn this and be able to support. And then I'll be in, on the East Coast. And I'm like, you can't live in New York and live on a support salary. And he said, I'm on Columbia Adult Education. They're subsidizing my apartment. I'll be fine. So, so we initially thought we were going to have a New York office. Then I looked at the price of real estate in New York and the price of people in New York. And I was like, we are not going to have a New York office, right? But we knew, I mean, like we were growing. We had to put some kind of presence on the East Coast because we needed more people on an East Coast time zone. We have financial advisors who are calling us and we don't answer the phone until 11 a.m., right? So, like, that's not going to work. So, um, ultimately, we uh, we decided we had to site an office somewhere on the East Coast. So, doing that is actually really challenging because we, you know, like, how do I say this? You can't fly into a city, hire a bunch of people, and say, okay, you all go to work on Monday and fly home. Like, that doesn't work, right? So, we, uh, we actually uh, convinced one of our California risk advisors to go on an adventure for six months to Atlanta. Uh, fortunately, it was in the spring. There's no adventure in Atlanta during the summer. It's, it's just hell on earth, okay? For a Californian, at least. Um, but he agreed to do that, so he moves to Atlanta. We hired a few salespeople, a few support people, kind of put together an office there. Um, you know, in terms of picking Atlanta as opposed to any other city, we, uh, you know, from, from Sacramento, you have to connect to fly anywhere. So one of the things I just kind of, like, uh, one moment of clarity, I'm like, we should put the East Coast office in a hub so that we can get to it with one flight. And so that really narrowed the set of cities. And I flew a lot of Delta, so that just made it, like, really easy. Um, so we thought about Minneapolis, but we went to Minneapolis once in the winter, and we're like, we'll go to Atlanta. That'll be better. So... Um, it's been great. You know, we're, we're sitting in Midtown right next to Georgia Tech, and um, Kennesaw State has a great engineering program. So we, uh, you know, funny story, our, our, our CTO was like, no, 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 like you can hire salespeople and support people. I want all my engineers here in Auburn. And, um, you know, we were in this big growth push, I want to say it, at the beginning of 2015, and I, I said to him, like, dude, you've got eight engineering slots that you that you need to have filled, and we're not going to lower our standards on what level of engineer, what quality of person that we'll hire, but, like, if you don't have a reasonable 
shot. Like, if in two weeks you don't have a reasonable shot at filling those spots, and I don't think you're gonna, like, we're gonna have to put out Jabrex and Atlanta and just see what it's like. He's like, no, 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 we don't want to do that. And so, two weeks later, like, we were nowhere close to filling paid engineering roles. We find great engineers in Auburn, mostly Bay Area transplants who want to actually be able to own a house eventually, you know? And so, we find great talent here, but there just wasn't a big enough volume of talent to fill all of our needs right then. So, we opened up job recs in Atlanta, and he started reading applications. He's like, we're going to hire a lot of people in Atlanta. So, you know, so... It's just a lot of great talent there. So it's been great. We've been able to kind of, there are times where we search and search in Atlanta, we cannot find the right person, we find them here. There are times we search and search here, we cannot find the right person here, we find them in Atlanta. So it's actually been really good to be able to like arbitrage two talent markets uh, to find what we need. Got a next question. Can you give a very simple explanation of how your software works? Sure. Simple explanation about the software works. Um, so it's built on top of the academic framework that won the Nobel Prize for Economics in 2002. And if I went to that, we would all fall asleep very quickly, but it's called prospect theory. So it, in effect, when you're going through this five to six minute questionnaire process to find your risk number, you're using dollar amounts that are relevant to you and going up and down your financial spectrum to kind of teach the algorithm when you prefer risk and when you prefer certainty. Um, the question, for example, might be if you had a $100,000 portfolio, it would say, well, would you prefer the certainty of a $5,000 gain, or would you trade that for a coin flip chance of either a $10,000 loss or a $15,000 gain? So you'd have to look at that and go, which would I prefer, right? So you choose, and then it's going to slide up or down based on your choice and ask you the next question. And in effect, what we're doing behind the scenes is building a mathematical curve that represents your tolerance for risk around your financial spectrum. You've got to put in, this made it very hard to demo for investors, you have to put in an accurate dollar amount for how much you really have to invest or the results are horrible. So, I mean, to give you an idea, like Warren Buffett and I might have the same risk number. But if I try to do the risk number using his dollar amount, I have no idea what would come out of it because I can't relate to his money. I don't know how to make risk and certainty decisions with his money. Conversely, I can guarantee you that if he did the risk number with my dollar amount, it'd be a risk 99, the highest risk number possible, right? Because he'd go, that's a trivial amount of money, risk, 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 the whole time, right? So so that that you've got to use a real dollar amount to get a real result out of it, uh, which kind of made it difficult when we were trying to demo it for investors, because they would say, well, let me do it. Then they put in a dollar amount, and we'd be like, we're pretty sure you're worth more than $100,000, so like... It's not going to work. So we, we would take them through other kinds of demos to help them understand. But that, that's how it works. Questions? Here, we got a question? Oh, here. Oh, we got lots of questions, too. Uh, <laughs> so yes, sir. The guy behind Adam. The guy behind Adam. Yeah. You know the Dodgers are losing 3 to 2. Woo! Uh, <laughs> I'm gonna have to leave for after he checks the score. <laughs> I'm done. <laughs> See you later. Thank you very much. For What's that? Changing the culture. Yeah. I was wondering if you could say a few words about the change in culture as the company grows and as you take investment. Great, great question. So you, I, the question was, you mentioned culture. 
Can you talk about the change in culture as the company grows and as you take investment? You know, that's that's something that we've actually, and, and part of this was driven by the bad culture that I was in before. But we've tried to be really, really purposeful about that. I have yet to see investment drive any difference in culture. So that's that's something we've been able to kind of set aside. Like investors don't drive culture. They don't have any kind of operating role in the company. So investment has not changed our culture at all. But adding people changes culture a lot. Um, I, I've often said that um, the easiest organization is the single person organization, right? Because there's total alignment and absolute communication. What 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 gets really complicated is when you start splitting the organism, right? And 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 it starts multiplying because then you've got to you've got to figure out how to keep people aligned. Um, we accomplish that in a variety of different ways. First of all, Dan, Dan will remember this as one of the first, you know, new people that joined in 2013. But you know, uh, we actually created in 2013 mission and values training, and. You know, I got some weird looks from people when I scheduled mission and values training for three new people coming aboard in a six-person company, right? Like, that's kind of weird. But I, I, I just felt like that was the only way that we were going to be the same company at hundreds of employees that we were at six. And, and so we were very intentional about it uh, in expressing what these core values were, how we were going to operate by them, how it was going to work. And we, we kind of overdid it in those early, like it, it was total overkill in 2013. But if you're kind of building an organization thinking you're going to be uh, a lot more people, then, then that's kind of what you do. Um, we also instituted, um, early on, I, I, you know, this is back to 2011, uh, we would, we didn't call it team lunch, but we would just, like the way that we would get caught up on things is Levi and Matt and I would grab, I grabbed sandwiches from the sandwich shop, right? Levi and Matt and I would sit down and all have lunch together. And every couple of weeks, and we just like get aligned on everything. Like, what are we, what are we building right now? What are the problems? What am I doing out on the road, talking to potential, trying to get E Trade to sign, or trying to get TV to sign, or whatever it was, right? And so we talk about all those things that kind of get up to date. So as we grew, we kept that tradition. So today it's Team Brunch because we do it at eight thirty Pacific, so that it's eleven thirty Eastern, so that we can serve brunch in both locations or all three locations. And um, and we literally shut down the company for 90 minutes every six weeks. And we and we and we do team brunch and just all get on the same page. And you know, the last time we did the math, I mean it's kind of nuts. It costs us thirty thousand dollars in payroll to do that. But it's worth its weight in gold because we're actually able to understand kind of what's going on and everybody's on the same page and, and we know the direction we're headed in and we're able to talk through those things and um, we get lots of questions and lots of people trying to understand how this strategy affects my team and all those kinds of things and um, really, really valuable. So we do that every six weeks um, and now it's called Team Brunch and it's a much bigger production with 200 people. So who again here was a startup founder? Raise your hand. One of you guys has to have a question that you haven't been asked yet. I have a question. You've already asked me. I have a question. Yes. 
Are you sure? We'll try to get them off. Don't worry. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, I did an ISP a while ago, and uh, part of the problem that we had was selling quality bandwidth to customers, right? And they didn't necessarily understand all the, the reasons why our bandwidth was better than the people that played with, uh, you know, sharing this and all that kind of stuff. So, I found myself with the challenge of educating customers uh, in a way that would keep their attention. Yeah. It seems to me that we're talking about like uh, uh, measures, you know, like everybody else's kind of risk curve. I could totally see where that would be challenging for you to like explain that to people. How did you deal with that uh, educating the customer without overwhelming them? Yeah, challenge. Um, that's an interesting question. I think that you you. You've had it a little bit tougher because your customer is the one who has to be convinced that it's better bandwidth, right? And so your customer, um, you know, what, and, and it's challenging because, like, my initial instinct would be, oh, you should you should show them like their their Netflix stream sputtering out or something, right? And and how you're not going to do that. And and you know, of course, the first time your Netflix stream sputters on your bandwidth, they're going to call and say, "You swore to me that your Netflix stream would never sputter, right?" <laughs> so that's a challenging problem. I would say for us, what's different is that our customer is the financial advisor, and I think the financial advisors like instinctively knew that they that they weren't really getting the true picture. You have to understand, like the status quo for us. We were we were so much better than the status quo. It'd be as if your competition was dialing, right? Like this is not even close. Like the the competition we had were paper questionnaires, where ninety five percent of the solution is your age. If you're young, you're probably aggressive. If you're old, you're probably conservative. Okay. And then we're going to ask nonsensical questions like, if your portfolio was a car, what kind of car would it be? And if you say Honda, they nudge your portfolio a little bit more conservative. And if you say Tesla, they nudge it a little bit more aggressive. And if you say VW, they just pollute the portfolio full of bad mutual funds. But but like another one was like, do you get a thrill out of investing? Well, think about that question for a second. I got a far greater thrill over the last year than I got in, say, 2008, when the market was down hundreds of points, right? That's a market sentiment question. So I can, you know, you can stereotype me by my age and then nudge my stereotype a little bit with my market sentiment. That doesn't make it my risk tolerance. So that was the fuzzy picture advisors were dealing with. And I think they just down deep knew that it wasn't right. We had one financial advisor who was really interesting, really sharp guy. And he jumped aboard with our product and he took his own risk number and he was a 51. He plugged his own portfolio in. It was a 52. It's a 1 to 99 scale. So he's kind of like, all right, I got it going on here. Like, I know what I'm doing. And um, he plugged in all of his client portfolios and discovered that they ranged from the 40s to the 60s. Then he started getting his clients' risk numbers back and they ranged from the 20s to the 80s. And he said it, it didn't take him very long to spot the pattern. He was actually really good at understanding which of his clients were more conservative than he was or more aggressive than he was, but he was anchoring their portfolios to himself. Right? So now, as he, in his words, he goes, I'm anchoring them to themselves, right? And I now understand why my conservative clients still felt nervous and my aggressive clients still felt frustrated. It was because I was anchoring them to me. 
not anchoring them to themselves. So, so part of this was, I, I, I genuinely think that the biggest part of that is simply that the status quo was so bad, it was as if we were competing with dialogue. I think that's 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 one of the hard challenges, but um, well, for sure, I think what else was was the investor wasn't like the yeah. investor. It was uh, we didn't have to convince the investor. Mm -hmm. so. We had to convince the advisor. Yeah. Okay. yeah. question. The question is like, shouldn't you, shouldn't the consensus be that if you're young, you should be conservative because if you have big losses, you're losing more of your principal than otherwise. So interestingly enough, like they've modeled this six ways from Sunday and the math says that you should start very aggressive and that you should trail off to being conservative when you're older. The math says that even if you have higher losses at the beginning, you've got a whole career ahead of you. You've got a lot of time to make up those losses. And the average returns of the market are going to give you the best long-term outcome if you start aggressive. And then you're going to want to taper off the conservative because the closer you get to retirement, the less you can handle big losses in the principal amount. Okay? So that's at least the consensus in the industry, and they run the numbers a lot of different ways. And so I'm, I'm not really in a position to argue with that. But where we came in with a very contrarian view to the industry was that just because you are young doesn't mean you should be aggressive. Just because you are old doesn't mean you should be conservative. Um, because people are individuals, and what's far worse than being too conservative as a young person is being very aggressive, losing all of your money, and then selling at the low. That's what's worse, right? Going like like I was in a I don't know some Hampton Inn somewhere in Kansas, waiting for my room to be ready, and I, I kind of like faded into the background, and like the two people at the at the desk were talking to each other, and she is trying to fill out her four hundred one k paperwork, and she says I'm really stuck, like I don't know whether I should invest in the conservative model or the aggressive model or the moderate model or what should I do? And this is 2013, right? The market's like this. And the guy at the desk says to her, oh, pick aggressive. It has been kicking butt recently. Now, if you think about that, what is he doing? He's just sitting there going, which one's been making the most? Well, of course aggressive's been making more money. The whole point of the conservative one is that it makes less, but it loses less. So he's going to wait until aggressive starts losing money, and then he's going to switch to conservative, right? So he'll lose a bunch of money, switch to conservative so that it's not growing as much, and then as soon as he sees aggressive doing better, he'll switch back to aggressive, and then the market will go down again, right? So his, that's our psychology, like 
So our, our belief was the better the better choice is figure out who you are as an individual and just align your portfolio to fit that, right? Because you may be 25 years old and you don't have the stomach to invest like a risk 85. And you may be 65 years old and you really want, like you're, you've got a pension or something and you're safe and you really want this money to grow faster and you want to invest like a risk 65. Age should not be the stereotype. And in fact, we had a team of academics come in and do a deep dive in the methodology and the data. And they found that investors aged 20 to 29, 52% of them didn't fit the stereotype of being aggressive. So literally half of the investors, by the way, this was the same thing on the investors aged 70 to 79, 53% of them didn't fit the stereotype of being conservative. So literally, the way our industry has been doing this pre-risk half of the investors are being stuck into the wrong amount of risk just based on the stereotype. So that's kind of what we're trying to change there. Do we have time for two more questions? Do we have a question? Yes. Thank you a lot of questions. One more round. Hey, if you go back again in 2014, now that you have a little bit of time, you paid up all the for being more efficient and less mistakes. I didn't hear the first part. I heard the last part. Go back to 2014, which is the year yeah, yeah. big growth and yeah. mistakes, right? Yes. Would you trade off? Would I trade it? Trade off the Yeah. Um, I don't think I would trade it. I really don't think I would. Um, there's a lot. I, there's a lot I would do differently, right? I would. I would go to investors once I saw it going like that, and I would say, "Hey, I need a few extra hundred thousand dollars right now to do some crazy things that sound really expensive, like put in Salesforce and put in like better billing systems and, and like stitch all this together." I would. I would. I would probably have done that. And that would have been a painful time to do that because you're taking a little more dilution. But I would absolutely have traded that. But I wouldn't trade away that growth here. Like it put us on the map, uh, and it set up a, an incredible 2015 and an incredible 2016, and, and so on and so forth. And you know, today we're continuing to kind of drive that that growth leadership in the industry. As far as I know, we're growing faster than any similar fintech company, um, kind of in the space. But we don't know of one that's growing faster. Um, we don't always hit all of our goals. We're we're very aggressive in our goal setting. We could probably be better at that. Uh, but but we we are growing faster than any of the other peer companies that that we see. So uh, no, I wouldn't trade it. I just would you know with the benefit of hindsight, I, I would probably do a few things differently for infrastructure. What is it? What is it? Hold on. I'm sorry. I gotta get the score. Three three. Okay. Yeah. So, like, I want to be clear. When I was, yeah. So, so he was saying, like, you said that the math says 
that when you're young, you should be really aggressive and then you should taper off the conservative over time. But what happens if the, if the, you know, if your questionnaire comes back and it says to a young person they should be conservative or to an older person that they should be aggressive? So I want to be clear. We don't, I'm just telling you what the math says will deliver the old, the, the largest number of dollars to somebody. Like if you could get an individual, give them a million dollars at age 20 and invest it as a risk 99 and and they could you could like give them a pill and they go into a coma until they were 65 okay the math says that that would give them the highest amount of money 45 years later okay but we're human and we actually can't handle that much volatility in our portfolio and we will inevitably make bad decisions like selling at the low when we're freaked out and scared because our million has turned into three million and oh my lord now it's down to two I've got to sell okay and we'll sell at the worst possible time and we'll we'll, we'll ruin what the long-term markets will do so we think that the better approach is to figure out who you are as an individual and it doesn't care. It doesn't matter. I, I, it doesn't matter if you if you leave dollars that you could have maybe made on the table, as long as you don't lose the dollars that you will lose if you make bad decisions along the way. Does that make sense? So, in other words, figure out who you are as a person. Invest in alignment with that. I, I, I'm going to give you my business partner as an example. Now, my car is parked outside, and I have the Risk 99 license plate on my car. Okay. My business partner is a risk 33. He always has been. He always will be. We balance each other really well that way, right? I'm like, let's hire 90 people in a year. He's like, let's not, right? So, so, like, when he invested at like the dot com, you know, in the dot com, the 1999 kind of thing, markets are just soaring. He's freaking out. Like, he can't sleep at night, even though he's making money hand over fist in the markets, because a financial advisor told him, "You're young. You've got your whole career ahead of you." And basically put him in like a rich 99. He can't handle it. The market tanks, he starts selling, panic selling, right? And he's, he's following that psychological pattern that we follow. So he would have been better off if he'd have just understood that he was a risk 33, invested his money like a risk 33, and then he wouldn't be stressed and trying to sell at the worst possible time. So that, that's my point. The math may tell us that the best thing to do is to be invested at high risk for a long period of time, but the reality is, is we're human, and the far better approach is to invest in alignment with our risk number and stay invested for the long term. That's what's going to actually get us the best outcome. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you.